Morning. Thank you. Good to know you're there. Everybody here? All right. Are we ready for this? Week four in our series, The History of Redemption. And today we're going to look at the book of Job. Job. Not Job. Job. All right. Now you might be asking why Job. We've, we've, you might, or you might not. I don't know. We finished Genesis last week. That was amazing, right? How, three weeks in Genesis? Quick. All right. We finished Genesis last week, so shouldn't we be in Exodus this week? Well, as I mentioned before, we're going through the Bible in chronological order. And most scholars believe Job lived about the same time as the patriarchs, you know, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So he lived during the time of Genesis. So now Job is 42 chapters long. If you're following along in your reading plan, how many are following along? All right, we got a few. Great. We haven't even finished Job yet. We're not to the end. We don't get to chapter 42 until day five of next week. So clearly we can't do this uh, amazing book justice with just one sermon. But one sermon is all we have. It's all we have time, so we, so we better get, get going. Now Job's story is the story of a godly man who experiences severe and undeserved even suffering. And so I want to begin by asking a question. Maybe you've thought about this. How do you explain the undeserved suffering of God's people? Many people believe suffering is the result of a person's own personal sin. That's what karma teaches. I know we we lived in Thailand for a lot of years, and karma is a big deal in the Buddhist culture. I remember a friend of ours... Her brother got shot and was killed, and the community, the people around her were asking the question, what must have he done wrong to get shot? What, comes around, what goes around comes around. And this is what Job's three friends, if you've read through, seem to believe. They repeatedly tell him. Eliphaz says in, in Job chapter 4, verse 8, As I have seen, those who plow iniquity... And so trouble, reap the same. Right? Now, let me, let me just pause for a second and talk about Job's three friends. We're not going to go into a lot of what they say, but what you'll notice, and you may be confused a little bit by Job's three friends, because they say a lot of good stuff, a lot of truth, but then they'll say something not right. So they say a lot. So, you know, they're just people. You know, they have some good ideas, the almighty, great God, but then they'll say something not so right on. And they're kind of like us in that way. We have our our points where we know the truth, and then we have some points where we don't. And what God is going to do, and what this story does, is is sort of correct them in their points of wrongness. And so uh, what they were saying, as we read, and what what it means is if you're experiencing trouble in your life, then you did something to deserve it. It's sort of their whole message almost. Now, we can fall into this kind of wrong thinking as well. We think, I deserve this pain. You're suffering, and you think, I deserve this pain because of something I've done. And maybe you can think back to something you've done. Or or they deserve, maybe that's more common, they deserve what they get because of what they've done. And don't get me wrong, there's some truth there. There's a hint of truth here. And that truth is, our sins... Our sins can cause pain and suffering in our lives 
and in the lives of others. That's true. It's true that, that and, and this is the first point for this morning, this provides a, a backdrop for the story of Job. We need to understand that sin brought and continues to bring suffering to all humanity. We see this truth throughout Scripture and throughout our lives. But nowhere it's, is seen more clearly than in the lives of the first, the first two humans. Let's quickly think about, we, we talked about them several weeks ago, let's think about how sin brought suffering to Adam and Eve specifically, and how that suffering continues throughout human history. God in the beginning created all things. He created humanity in his image, the highest of his creation. He also created the angelic realm. We didn't talk much about this, but he created the angels. And all things are good, and all things are created for God's glory. But one of those created angels rebels and says, No, I want my own glory. I don't want to live for your glory. I want to live for my glory. Lucifer is in cast out of heaven to earth. He takes on the form of a servant, a servant, not a serpent. He comes to Adam and Eve with deception, with temptation, and they fall to sin. And with sin comes guilt and shame and death and decay. That was the fall, and that was the beginning of human suffering. Before the fall, man labored in the garden, and he enjoyed his work. Now after the fall, it's by the sweat of his brow, he toils and labors and suffers to provide for himself and for his family. Don't forget that when sin entered the world, with it came decay and death. All of creation was damaged by sin. Creation would no longer be in perfect balance, in perfect harmony. There would be floods. A really big one would come. And volcanoes, and tornadoes, and hurricanes, and hail, earthquakes, and droughts. Humanity suffers because of the damage that sin brought to creation. Before the fall, woman was to be fruitful and multiply, to, to, to fully enjoy giving birth. But after the fall, it would be with tears and with pain and that she would bring forth children. And many times, it's those very children that we bring forth that, that cause us the most suffering in our lives. God gave Adam and Eve two sons. He gave them more, but two to start with. And because of the sinful wickedness of one son, Cain, they were to bury their other son, Abel. Can you feel Adam and Eve suffering as they lose Abel, especially knowing he was killed by his brother Cain. Before the fall, man and woman were happy. Everything was wonderful. They, they were in perfect relationship with God and with one another. They loved one another. And they talked to each other. They joyfully met one another's needs. But after the fall, relationships would change. There would be blaming and abuse and rebellion, and conflict, and curse. There would be the potential for immorality and divorce. And all of the destructive power of sin and decay and death was handed down to all of humanity. With sin came terrible suffering. And because of that first sin, and because of our continual sin, pain and suffering and death continue on. They are in many ways the norm in our world so yes, I hope we see that sin brought suffering to all of humanity. But that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that pain and suffering 
always point back to your own personal sin. That's what Job's friends believed. Just look at human history. And you'll see that suffering is not reserved for the most sinful, the most wicked people. In fact, we, we, we could echo Job's question in chapter 21, verse 7. Why do the wicked live, reach old age, and grow mighty in power? This is the corollary to the question we were asking. Why do the righteous suffer, and why do the wicked prosper? In our minds, it just seems logical, and in Job's mind, in Job's friends' minds even, the wicked should suffer and the righteous should not. But the reality of life after the fall is that suffering touches everyone. The Christian and the atheist are both killed by the same flood, by the same earthquake, hurricane, or tornado. The believer and the unbeliever suffer the same diseases, cancer and heart failure, stroke, even HIV AIDS. The godly and the ungodly are both caught up in the ravages of war, of drought, of famine. The saint and the sinner are both heading toward the same dreadful end, death. Humanity, all of us, the righteous and the wicked, experience suffering because we live in a sinful, fallen world. Yet we still ask the question, why suffering? Or more specifically, why does God allow His people to suffer? And to personalize the question for some of us right now, why is God allowing me or my child or my family or my friend to suffer? And I believe Job's story provides us with, if not a definitive answer, it provides us with some insight into this question. And more importantly, most importantly, I think, Job, the book of Job, provides us with a picture of the proper response to personal suffering. And as we'll see, the book of Job, Job's story, also points to a a suffering Savior. We'll look at that as well. But let's begin by looking at Job's story, or at least some of Job's story. There's much we don't have time to cover but I want us to understand some important things about Job. And the first thing we see is that Job was blameless before God. Blameless before God. Chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, not Oz, but Uz, whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. He was blameless, upright, turned away from evil because he feared God. And God says the same thing about him in in verse 8 of chapter 1. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? There can be no stronger testimony to Job's blameless character than that of the Lord God himself. Now, being blameless, just to be clear, didn't mean that Job was sinless. He, like all the descendants of Adam, sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God points, God's point was not that Job was sinless. His point was that Job was a man of God. He sought after God. When he sinned, he repented and confessed. Job lived a blameless life because he continued to go to the Lord. Job sought to live upright and righteous before the Lord. He sought to be obedient to the Lord, and yet he suffered greatly. And yet he suffered greatly. That should 
put aside all doubts even right there. Job's story teaches us that we should never think that being blameless before God means we cannot suffer, that we will not suffer. It does not mean that. So first, Job was blameless before God, and yet he suffered. Second, Job was tested by God. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on all the earth, blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. In the heavenlies, way above Job, unknown to Job, Satan comes to the Lord. And the Lord puts the spotlight on Job. You know, think about it. This spotlight just shines on Job. And all of what it follows, all of what follows in this book of Job is initiated not by Job... Not by Satan, but by the Lord God. Verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land? But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. One thing we need to point out here, God has been actively involved in Job's life. God has been protecting him, and God has been blessing. All Job has is from the Lord. Put that in your head. Then Satan throws down a challenge. Of course Job is blameless and upright. You bless him. You protect him. You've surrounded him. I can't touch him. But if you you touch or, or strike is really... A better use of the word. All that he has, he will curse you. Verse 12. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Satan is saying that Job trusts in the Lord because the Lord has blessed him. And if you remove that blessing, Job will no longer trust you, Lord. He'll curse you. And God agrees to Satan's challenge. He agrees to test Job's faith. We need to understand that if you claim to have faith in the Lord, then your faith will be tested. We already saw Abraham's faith tested when he was was commanded to, to sacrifice his son Isaac. We saw Joseph's faith tested over and over again, didn't we? In 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 the pit, in prison, in Potiphar's house. Now Job's faith will be tested through severe suffering. So when suffering comes, don't be surprised. The Apostle Peter makes this point very clear. 1 Peter 4, I was a little worried about this message, this whole thing. When, you know, is somebody, maybe me, going to experience some suffering here? But don't be surprised. 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, Peter writes, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. This is the norm, guys. Trials in the Christian life. Don't be surprised by suffering. Because you live in a sinful world and the Lord will put you to the test your faith. Like Job, you will experience trials and tests. So Job's faith was tested by God. And Job proved faithful to God. It's our third point. 
In Job 1, 13 through 19, and we won't read it all, we won't read any of it, we see that Satan, under God's authority, we see what Satan does to Job. Let me quickly summarize. I can do it quick. In a very brief time, Job received the terrible news, all of his livestock, livestock were your main possessions, all of his servants, a few were left alive, but most of them were dead, a few were left alive to bring bad news to Job, and all of his sons and daughters are dead. Livestock, servants, sons and daughters, all gone. And in verse 1, I mean in chapter 1, verse 20, Job responds to this news. If you have a Bible, which I hope you do, underline this, underscore this. This is so important that we see this amazing response from this man. I was in the hospital on Friday uh, talking with Charlie, and I shared this passage with him. And I think he was encouraged by it. Verse 20, Job chapter 1, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head. He just received all this news. And fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Yeah, amazing. Amazing statement and profoundly reasoned, reasonable, we'll get to that, response from a man of faith. He began, and he certainly mourned. He mourned the loss. He was in pain and he was suffering. He tears his robe. He shaves his head. These are, these are signs of great sadness and sorrow and mourning. But what follows is the response of a man who trusts in God. His response may be counterintuitive to some. Why should I bless the name of the one who's in control? He knew God was in control whether Satan's doing it or, or, or God's doing it, God is in control of his suffering. Why, why, Job says? How can he do this? How can he have this response? Because I came into this world with nothing, naked. Everything I have was given to me by the Lord, my Creator. And if the Lord decides to take it away, who am I to argue? Naked will I depart. So I'm going to, Job says, in the midst of my suffering, do the only thing I know how to do. Praise his name. Bless the Lord. That's all I can do. And it continues. Then in chapter 2, Job experiences more suffering. Satan comes to the Lord again. The Lord points out that even in his great loss, he's lost everything. Job has remained faithful. Job has passed the test. Then Satan says in in verse 4 of chapter 2, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord again agrees to this test of faith. Verse 7, Satan struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. But even in this, Job remains faithful to the Lord. He might, he will question God. We'll look at that shortly. But he never curses the Lord. We see it in the very end. After much suffering, Job says in chapter 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things. In the midst of my suffering, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. But there's a purpose here. There's a purpose here. 
Job understands that God was in control and that God's purposes were being accomplished. And for Job, he was willing to trust God, hope in God, no matter what. Back in chapter 13, verse 15, Job had said, Though he slay me, I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. God, even if you kill me, I'm going to hope, I'm going to trust, I'm going to put my faith in you. Job remained faithful He passed the test of faith. Now, what about us? When suffering, when tests and trials come, maybe they're they're on the Job scale, maybe they're somewhere lower. When we experience great loss, when we experience pain, maybe it's overwhelming. When the things and the people that God has blessed us with are taken away, yes, we mourn. And we cry, we don't deny our pain, but we also must not deny our Lord. Our response to suffering must be to trust in the sovereignty of the Lord of glory. That's what faith does. It trusts Him, not just in the good times, that's easy. That's easy. Oh Lord, everything's going great, I trust you, thank you Jesus. Faith trusts in the worst of times. Faith trusts that the Lord will give and take away according to His purposes. It's your clay in the potter's hand. In suffering, true faith falls on its face in mourning, yet still blesses, praises the name of the Lord. So Job, in the midst of suffering, remains faithful to God. But Job is also honest with God. Did you notice uh, what Job 13.15 said, I didn't comment on it, but it's underlined, I think. Yeah, it's underlined up there. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. God, even if you kill me, I'll hope in you, I'll trust in you. Yet, but, however, I will argue my ways to his face. Job says, I will tell you, even argue with you about this undeserved suffering. We see this in many places in the book of Job. Job's speeches are basically his, what, why is this happening to me? Uh, I'll, his, his friends accuse him, you must be a, a terrible sinner for this to happen. No, let me plead my case. I'm, I'm, I'm faithful to the Lord, I trust in the Lord. One example is at the beginning of chapter 10. Job just breaks forth with his true feelings, saying, I loathe my life. This is chapter 10, verse 1. I loathe my life. I will give free utterance to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me. Let me know why you contended against me. Does it seem good to you to oppress, to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? Why are you doing this to me and not the wicked? Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as a man sees? Are your days as the days of man or your years as as a man's years that... You should seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I am not guilty and there is none to deliver, deliver out of your hand. Job does not hold back from, from speaking to the Lord. He tells his honest feelings about his suffering. He hates his life. He complains. He's bitter. He's confused about what's God, what God is doing. He knows that he's not guilty and yet he's suffering and he wants to understand, and he wants to be delivered. Job is honest with God, but he's also reverent. We need to notice that. He's reverent before God in expressing those feelings. He's asking God honest questions. He's pouring forth his heart. He's not cursing God for his situation. 
He never says, God, because you, if you don't take this away, if I don't get out of the suffering, I'm going to walk away from you. You know? In his honesty, he never loses faith in God. Even when he doesn't understand, he still trusts in God. Isn't that the definition of faith? When we don't understand, we still trust. If we understand, why faith? And when he faces suffering, and when we face suffering, we need to be honest with the Lord. Tell him our feelings, our sadness, our sorrow, our bitterness, our pain. Let it out. God can handle it. God can deal with it. God wants you to be honest. He wants you to pray for relief, to depend on him for strength. He wants us to tell him our true feelings, even to argue our case before the Lord. But I would suggest, and I think Job is the great example of honest reverence before the Lord, never losing faith, never losing trust, but being honest with God. And number five, Job was humbled before God. He was honest with him, and then God humbled him. Job was a humble man already, but God says, okay, let's take it up a notch. Throughout Job, the book, he questions why he's suffering. It seems like he's being disciplined for doing something wrong. He's unaware of the conversation. He didn't have that heavenly view. He didn't read chapter one. He didn't know uh, God had said, you're blameless and upright. He didn't know uh, God had allowed Satan to do these things. He doesn't really understand that his faith is being tested. And so he asks again and again that he might plead his case before the Lord. He wants to know why he's suffering. And in chapters 38 and 39, 39 of Job, God responds. The, from the, the book till this point is, is Job, the friends and Job kind of going back and forth, back and forth. And then in 38, 39, God gives Job a, a, a long answer to Job's honest questions about why he's suffering. I wish we could read it all. I would ex- encourage you to, to read it. Here's a sample. God says in, in chapter 38, verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb? You get the picture? It goes on from there and continues from there. It goes on all the way to the end of chapter 39. And basically what God is saying... How God answers Job's question is, and this might not satisfy you, but take that up with God, not me. God is saying to Job and to us in response to our suffering, I'm great, I'm in control, I created all things, they, you are mine, I'm God, and you're not. I'm not required to answer you or anyone You, however, are required to trust in me. That's tough. And Job, to his credit, responds in repentance and humility. Job 4, 44. Chapter 40, verse 4. Behold, Job says, this is after God has told him what's up. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. 
He says, I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Job says, I get it. You're God. I'm not. I'm of small account. I have no right to question you. I lay my hand on my mouth. I'll shut up now. But then, in Job chapter 42, verses 3 through 6, he does say one final humble thing. He says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God, I, I really didn't know what I was talking about. Whatever you say, I'll listen. I'll accept your answers to my questions, whether they come or not. And whether I understand why I'm suffering or not, I'm going to trust in you. I, I humbly, in humility, repent. And notice one thing that Job says. It's underlined. I believe this is key part for us to, to understand the suffering of the godly. Job has been a godly and upright man. He's been pleasing to God. But after months of suffering, Job says to God, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. But now my eyes see you. Job's suffering had changed his relationship with God. In prosperity, Job heard God. He listened and he heard and he did what God said. He obeyed. He was upright. He was blameless. But now in suffering, he sees the Lord. Put simply, through suffering, Job's eyes have been opened to the glory and majesty and might of the Lord. And this is so important for us to realize. This, to me, is the heart of why Job suffered. Not to prove something to Satan. When God initiated Job's suffering, when God said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? He knew that the result would be a deeper, he was working for Job's good. Hard to believe, maybe. If you're all about the possessions and the people in your life, impossible to believe. But if you're all about who is God and how we understand God and the glory of God is the most important, then this would be how, God, how Job would come to know God more and see God more and understand His glory more. That Job would be able to see the Lord in ways he could never see Him in prosperity. Never see Him without His suffering. And that's true for us as well. If we, in the midst of suffering, will humbly turn to the Lord, honestly state our feelings, yet reverently trust in the Lord, put our hope in the Lord, then our eyes will be open like, like never before to the glory and majesty and wonder of God. As He strengthens us, as He sustains us in and through our suffering. So Job humbled himself before the Lord. And in the end, Job was restored by God. Excuse me, I'm looking at the clock, okay. I got like a a little option here. Do we have time? In the end, Job was restored by God. Let's just read. I'm going to read this to us. I think it's it's the happy ending that that Job gets. And the Lord restored, this is uh, chapter 42, verse 10 through 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord, 
So the friends had come and repented and made sacrifices for their stupid sayings. And then the Lord restores Job. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. And if you look back in chapter 1, it lists what he had before, and this is more. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Kizith, Kiza, and the name of the third, Karen Hapach. And in all the land there was no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years. And he saw sons, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons for four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So after his suffering, the Lord restored Job all he had and more. Now we're not promised when we suffer that when we suffer loss in this life, that everything will be restored, and then more. But I think this, this earthly picture of restoration of Job's possessions and his family pictures the final restoration that will come to all who trust in the Lord. If you are a child of God, no matter how much you suffer in this life, the Lord will bring restoration, resurrection, Above and beyond all that you can ask or think. Sometimes in this life, but always in the life to come. We have an eternal hope. That in the, that in the above and beyond, above and beyond all the suffering that this sinful world brings. We have an eternal hope greater than whatever happens to us in this life. Amen? Now that's Job's story. Now, have we answered the question, why do God's people, why do we suffer? I'm not sure we have fully, but I hope we've moved farther along in our understanding. We, we began by seeing that sin, sin brings suffering. Sin brought suffering to all humanity. There's suffering because of the sin in this world. We saw how God will test the faith of his people through suffering. We saw that God did not give Job a direct answer to the question about suffering. We may never understand why any given suffering is happening in our life. But we also saw that through Job's suffering, he grew in his relationship with the Lord, his understanding of the Lord. He saw the glory of the Lord. He moved from hearing to seeing the Lord. So whether we can totally have totally answered the question or uh, of why we suffer not sure we we really can or will but i believe more importantly we have answered the question of what should our response to suffering be we may not know why this is happening but we know what we should do when it's happening put simply our response should be honest humility before the lord and faithfulness to the lord honest humility and faithfulness before the Lord. Telling Him how you, we honestly feel about our situation. Recognizing who He is and who we're not. Trusting in Him. 
remaining faithful to Him through our suffering. Whether our restoration comes in this life or the next, if we trust in Him, our suffering, in our suffering we will see His glory will be revealed. So that's sort of the end. Well, let's, let's, let's ask this final thing. How does Job's story point us to Jesus? We've been asking that throughout our, our study. Where is this, how does this point us to, 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 to Jesus? And, and again, don't miss the parallels. Like Joseph last week, we don't want to take this too far. But look again at Job's story and notice, Job was blameless before God. Jesus was blameless before God as well. The story of Job is the story of a man who experienced undeserved suffering. And the story of Jesus is the story of the God-man who experienced totally undeserved suffering. And Jesus was not only blameless, Jesus was sinless. And yet he suffered for our sake. In 1 Peter 2, 21, we read, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Jesus suffered for our sake. And we are also to follow in his steps. Don't be surprised, Peter will say, at suffering. Second, Job was tested by God and Jesus was tested by God. I'm going to take a little liberty here and just say, I don't, I don't know if it happened this way or not, but I can imagine it. Up in heaven, God looking down, the sons of God coming before him, and there's Satan, and God says, Have you considered my servant Jesus? There is none like him on earth. Satan says something like, well, let me get at him. Let me tempt him. Let me test him. You know, make him really vulnerable and I'll go down and test him. And then the beginning of Jesus' ministry, if you remember, he's, he's fast for 40 days and 40 nights. He's in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten at his lowest point, at his weakest point. And Satan comes and tempts and tests, tests him. So Jesus was tested by God. And, and third, Job was faithful to God and Jesus was faithful to God. He passed the test in the wilderness and he continued to pass any test in all things. He was faithful to his father. Throughout his life, he's willingly submitted to the will of God. He was faithful all the way to death, death on a cross, suffering and dying on our behalf. Jesus was faithful to God. Job was honest before God and Jesus was certainly honest with God. Best example in the Garden of Gethsemane, while, while, while praying and sweating drops of blood, he prayed, Father, if you will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He, Jesus honestly did not want to face the cross. He didn't want to face the, our sins being put upon him. He didn't want to face his God turning from him. Father, why have you forsaken me? He would say, He says to God, though, not my will, but yours be done. He's honest, but in his honesty, he's reverent. God, your will, not mine. Job was humble before God, and Jesus was humble before God. Paul writes in Philippians 2, 7 and 8, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Job was restored by God and Jesus was restored by God. Continuing on in Philippians verse 9, 
chapter 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus will be, he has been, he's restored. He's humbled, but he's restored. So I hope we see that Job's story, not taking it too far, but Job's story in, in a number of ways points to Jesus. And one final thing, one final, maybe the most clear thing that points to Jesus in the book of Job, and that is uh, Job's Redeemer. Job looked forward to, to one who would bring redemption. In Job chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, Job says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Job, in the midst of his suffering, was comforted by the truth. By the truth. Where did this truth come from? From the promise in Genesis 3.15 that there would be one that would crush Satan's head. From, from seeing God provide for Adam and Eve. Hearing those stories. From, from hearing of Abraham and his sacrifice. The Lord will provide. I, we don't know for sure how he knows. But he knows the Redeemer. His Redeemer will be, will come. In the midst of his suffering, he's comforted by this truth that one day there would be a redeemer, a deliverer who would stand on earth. He also knew that when he died, when his skin had been destroyed, he would see God. He believes in life after death. He believes in the resurrection. And he knows that there's coming one day he would be delivered even from the suffering of death. Job doesn't know who his Redeemer is, but he trusts. He trusts in God's promises. We know, though, we know who our Redeemer is. Jesus Christ is our Redeemer. Jesus Christ is Job's Redeemer, and Jesus Christ is ours, our Deliverer, the one who brings us eternal restoration. Let's trust in Him at all times. Trust in Him even and especially in those times of suffering, that we might too see the glory of the Lord. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, thank you for for this word to us. Thank you for Job's life, for the example he is, how to face suffering, Lord. But most of all, thank you that, that our Redeemer lives, that Jesus has come. He stood on this earth. He's lived a sinless life and he's died in our place, humbled himself and died in our place, Lord. Let us trust in him. In the midst of of all of the suffering that this life brings, let us trust in him. That we might move from, from hearing from you to seeing the fullness of your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Stay with us.